Uh, my name is Sylvia Boerstein, and this is Lynn Jensen. And uh, I think many of us have met before. I know many of you. How many of us? How, how many people here have I not met before? Huh. How many people have I met before? Okay. How many people have never met Lynn before? Okay. How many people have met Lynn before? Okay, terrific. So you have brand new. You could not even be Lynn, and no one would know. <laughs> I could have brought somebody else. <laughs> I could have sent a friend. <laughs> I wouldn't have even known. <laughs> no, it's true. No, except for the pictures on the back of your book. Um, I, I, so we've met before. First of all, how many of you have never been to Spirit Rock before? What's your name? Susan. Susie. So welcome to Susan. Welcome to Spirit Rock. Please come. And Katya. Katya. Well, welcome. I think it's a wonderful day for you to have come. I hope you'll come again. There's, there's all kinds of material. You could go out laden with schedules and and invitations to come to everything. There, one of my uh, one of my grandchildren said to me yesterday, "Is there something always happening at Spirit Rock?" And it was apropos of something. So I said, "Yeah, more or less, there is something always happening down here or up there in the meditation hall." There's a week-long retreat happening up in the upper hall. So we asked you, there's a sign that says, please don't walk around there in the, in the walking around times today. So here we are. And uh, uh, just as a word of introduction to Lynn Jensen, who I will get to know today, uh, it's not the first time I've met him. I met him last night. And... Uh, uh, and uh, the reason we're here today is because about a year ago I got um, a, uh, uh, a survey letter from one of the Buddhist magazines. I don't remember if it was Tricycle or the Shambhala Sun. Was it Tricycle? Wisdom. No, it was Wisdom. Uh -huh. That said, um, we are asking Buddhist teachers, what, uh, what books are you reading these days? What books are you liking? What, what, what books do you think are good Dharma books? Either because they're specifically about... It was Shambhala. It was Shambhala's Sunset. Yeah, thinking of the magazine. Yeah, the, the magazine. The Shambhala Sunset. What are the books that you're reading? And, you know, they could be specific Buddhist texts, or they could be anything that you think is, is Dhamma wisdom. Uh, what are you reading? And uh, I wrote... Uh, and we're just supposed to write a paragraph. So I think I wrote something quite flowery. I don't remember what I wrote, but I think I wrote, I'm in love with Lynn Jensen as a starter. Did I write that? Something like that? You wrote that? <laughs> and I went on to say that I'd read two of his books, and I found him so appealing. There's one particular line. Do you want to know the line that I fell in love with you over, by the way? There's a line, I think. It's the line, is it Bad Dog that's about you growing up on the turkey farm? Yes, uh -huh. So it, it, it's, a, it's Lynn's life story. It's compelling. And in the beginning, he tells about his, uh, his early life in a, in a family, growing up in a family of deep poverty in Southern California on a turkey farm with parents whose parenting was quite, um, quite uh, harsh, we might say, uh, and uh, really dramatically harsh 
for uh, a person who hasn't had that background, and for 50 years or 60 or 70 years later, where we have much more understanding about child raising. So it's, it, it's presented as it was like this, and it was like this, and it was like this, and like this. And some of it's really hard to read. And then he tells about his parents. In uh, what I come to think of as a very Zen voice, just this is the way it is, this is the way it was, and this is the way my mother grew up, and this is the way my father grew up. And then he said, so uh, neither of my parents had any particular role modeling of how to do responsible parenting. And that was it, period. It was like that took care of that whole thing. Where, and you know, and it's because it doesn't take care of that whole thing in terms of the sequelae of, of all the, the things that get laid down in neurons and whatever happens in, in the developing baby. But th that, that's, that takes care of the lifetime of making them villains and keeping yourself a victim. It just liberates that whole thing from the story of victims and villainhood. Um, and I was so touched by it. They, neither of them had any role models of how to do responsible parenting. So that's it. I, don't know, I thought, whoa, I, that's a man I'd really like to know. So it was that very sentence that I really touched me. Uh, I thought you were a kind man, and I thought you were a very, very wise man. And so I wrote that in, in the Shambhala Sun, and they printed that along with other teachers. What are they reading? And then by and by, I had an email from you, I think. Would you send me an email? And he's thanking me for what I said, and he said, I'd like to teach with you. So I invited him. So here we are. That's it. <laughs> and I said, well, it'll be great, particularly. We didn't make up a topic until last night, really, uh, because we didn't meet till last night. But what we were going on uh, was, this, was a kind of an understanding that both of us are past 70. Uh, we could uh, join a gym jointly, probably for free. <laughs> <laughs> both of us are past 70, we've been parents, we are grandparents, and both of us have been practicing for, uh, what year what, what year did you start? Mm. Oh, I, I never keep count, but I've probably been doing this for about 25, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. 19, uh, July 7th, 1977, I went on my first year. You know, I, I like that. I like that. I tell the people because it's like lucky numbers on a slot machine. You know, if it comes up seven, 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 that's good. It's a good omen. So, uh, I don't uh, really want to know how long I've been. You know, I should be further along. <laughs> Do you know somebody said that to me once? And in an interview, I had an interview with a teacher once. And I probably was inept about what I said in answer to something. And he said to me, how long have you been practicing? And I said, however long, five years. It was a long time ago. And he said, you know, you should be much further along. Than that. <laughs> that was a terrible thing. Can you imagine? That is a true story. I mean, But you know what? I didn't believe him. I absolutely didn't believe him. I thought, that's just a thing to say. That's his experience, not mine. And that and I feel, phew, just dodge that bullet. I really did. So we'll just pass back and forth this morning. We'll talk a little bit. We'll both we'll all meditate together. 
We'll both teach a little. We'll all meditate together. We'll invite you to ask us questions. This afternoon we'll be in a little dialogue together. The day will pass before you know it, actually, like life. Um, that's one of those heavy sayings, but anyway, uh, yeah. What's the topic? Uh, Linda's going to tell you right now. <laughs> <laughs> the topic is, um, the title I gave it, I think, was Beyond Buddhism. I discovered that there is, in fact, a life beyond Buddhism. <laughs> and, of course, that came simultaneously with understanding that there really isn't anything other than Buddhism. And if Buddhism is everything, then there's nothing to isolate. I mean to say this, that thinking of Buddha as Buddha or Dharma as Dharma as just the way things are, just the reality, then you can't really isolate any of those traditions. So what we're going to do today a little bit is to go off trail. You know, and I'll talk about that a little bit later after we meditate, but that's, that's basically the theme that... Uh, Sylvia and I thought we would talk about is that um, the Dharma comes at us from all sides at all times. As young men said, the whole world is medicine, which is like saying the whole world is Dharma. <laughs> and you don't need to really look for a specific source. You don't really need to go anywhere or be any different or improve yourself in any way. Uh, the world is always speaking to you. All you really have to do is to see it as it is, as best you can. And to do that, you need to sometimes drop your ideas or your viewpoints, your feelings that you have about it, your judgments, your sort of viewpoint, your take on things. And above all, you need to drop your spirituality as if that were something different than life itself. So that's sort of the theme. I'll come back to that a little bit later. <laughs> Um, well, Sylvia has pretty much told you the things that I would want to tell you. Um, yes, uh, I remember when I began writing, and I had read, been told, that the best way to write was to write about things that you knew. I mean, like if you happen to take a trip to some exotic place, like let's say I go on a pilgrimage to India, don't come back and write a book about India. You know, let Indians write about India, <laughs> but write about something that you know firsthand. And I thought, you know, some of the people that I had read, the classics that were especially important to me, Conrad had the whole South Pacific thing, Orwell was there in India during the occupation, Melville had all that wonderful travel on the sailing ships and the adventure of that, uh, Hawthorne and, and uh, Emerson and... Thoreau, they all lived in Concord at the, at the big eminence of the American Renaissance tradition and literature. I had a turkey farm. <laughs> you know, what am I going to do with a turkey farm? And so I returned, you might say, to what I knew best and what really and discovered that right there on that farm, all of life was taking place. All the Dharma was already unfolding. So I was born in 1932. My father was a Danish immigrant. He'd come to this country. My mother was literally left on the doorstep of the Episcopal Church in Missoula, Montana, when she was still a nursing infant. <laughs> so 
They got married on the eve of the Depression. My mother was 17. And then they tried to raise a family. And I have to say now, they did a wonderful job. And we never went hungry. And while there was harshness, there was fear behind that, that somehow things would lose control, run out of line. So that, that was my beginning. A lot of turkey <laughs> milling around in 180 acres of leased land on the old Irvine Ranch in Southern California, dust and feathers and flies and turkey manure. I mean, you could dust the house and have all the windows closed and in an hour the top of the piano would have something like a layer of talcum powder on top of it which was really just ground up turkey manure and dust so that's the way we lived and we had a farm and we had a garden and we fed ourselves and then came World War II and you know when we had this recession come on us recently I felt kind of like at home, you know, this is pretty good, you know. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe we will start growing gardens again in our yards. Maybe we will start looking out for the people who are too old to keep a garden. Um, maybe we will watch out for each other. Maybe we'll learn how to do with a little bit less. Maybe our lives will get a little more like Thoreau's and we'll simplify, simplify, simplify. And as Thoreau said, front the essential facts of life again. I'm not saying we don't do that. I'm just saying that sometimes we get caught up in too much. So that was it. Uh, in terms of my experience in Zen, um, <clears throat> I have roots. I might initially begin in the Soto Zen tradition. That's still my basic home. I'm a Zen Buddhist. Uh, later, I trained for several years uh, in the Rinzai tradition. I wanted to learn about koans, and I had the opportunity to train under what I happen to think is the finest koan master in the West, John Tarrant, who taught me what koans were like and how people do that. So uh, I've been at that for these years. I uh, am also the uh, senior Buddhist chaplain at High Desert State Prison in Susanville, California. It's a maximum security prison. Most of the Buddhist students that I work with or those who would like to explore Buddhism are young and they're serving life sentences. Many of them will never leave prison. So that has been a Dharma adventure for me. And uh, I founded... Um, quite a number of years ago now, the Chico Zen Sangha in Chico, California. And I'm still hanging around there being the sort of teacher and, and cultivating others to take over, <laughs> uh, if at all possible, when, when I decide that I want to do other things. <clears throat> so that's, that's me. And uh, that brings me here. And... Uh, I have to say, I really like being here. In the morning it's cold and then the sun comes up and it starts to light up those hills and those little valleys and creases with the live oaks in them. And it's just gorgeous. <laughs> and being here and seeing all of you and all your faces and feeling already uh, warm in touch with you, it's just the place that I love to be.
So I hope you have fun today because I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a good time. <laughs> uh, Sylvia and I, we thought we would like to do two relatively brief meditation periods. And the fun of it would be is, since I'm a Zen Buddhist, I would introduce a little bit of Zen meditation. It might happen to be different from what you're doing. It might happen to not be so. Um, and then Sylvia would start a meditation and, and give suggestions or instructions. So, um, in the Soto tradition, in which I train primarily, uh, we have done what I call loosen the tether. That's a farm thing at all. Like if you have if you have a pasture, for example, but you don't have a fence to keep the cow in, what you do is you can drive a stake into the ground, uh, your milk cow, and then you can have a long rope on it, and then the cow can graze, you know, that entire circle until the grass is eaten there, and then you pull the stake up and you move it. So that's a tether. And uh, what happens is, say, for example, in meditation, uh, sometimes in Zen they will say, okay, what you do in order to keep your mind at home, you know, to stay home where you are, to actually be doing your meditation and not going off to Maui or someplace like that, you know, or remembering what someone said to you that you didn't like and sort of reliving the story, but really nailing them this time, you know, <laughs> saying all the things you wish you'd said and hadn't. When that happens, they said, and, and you can't keep your mind quiet, then count your breaths. Count your out-breath, for example, from one up to ten. And uh, then if you get to ten, then go back and start at one again. Uh, I've, you know, I've had some people tell me they can't get to one. <laughs> and, and I've done this, you know, and I'd find out I was at 46. <laughs> and I had no idea I was at 46 because I was off in Maui or someplace <laughs> like that having a really good time. So I found it was perfectly possible, as a matter of fact, to be counting your breaths and still go wandering off anywhere you wanted to. Then that's a pretty good tether, though. It's something precise. It's something exact. It brings you back to the moment. <coughs> you can come back to that. The other, which is a little looser tether, you know, that holds you quite so tightly, would be just to be aware of your breath or some specific thing. Sometimes in the tradition they'll say your, your middle, your hara, you know, feel that. Or, or if you're forming the mudra, this would be the Zen mudra, well then come back to the mudra and feel whether it's going relaxed or whatever's going on. So that would be a way to bring your mind back home, to be tethered. Now, in the tradition, the way I was begun, wouldn't do any of that. <laughs> We, we were taught to, I was taught initially to sit shikantaza. A way I would describe that is there's no tether and there's no fence around the pasture. All you're told to do is just sit. That's pretty interesting to me, you know. I mean, what you have to come back to is just simple awareness of being where you are. You don't have any aid specific aid to bring you back. And you're not being told to meditate on loving kindness or impermanence or, or, or no self and not a, any of those things. You're just being told just to sit there. And I got told that and then 
I didn't have anybody to sit with, so for the first five years of my life, I just sort of sat there. And that's pretty good, you know, and it was sort of easy in a way. I mean, I had a teacher that told me one time he was never very good at sitting, and he was always trying to do it right, and then he decided, oh, heck, I'll just sit any old way that I want to. And he said it got pretty good after that. <laughs> So that's Shikantaza. It's absolutely formless. There is no instruction given whatsoever other than set a certain period of time, hold still. Actually, if you fret a little bit, notice that you're fretting. That's not a big deal, you know. You, you'll get tired of fretting and then you'll hold still. It's that kind of an experience. One time when I was at the prison, we were in yard D, which is sort of where the hole is. It's the really maximum, maximum security part of it. And my friend David uh, O'Keefe, who was going with me, he and I were teaching a small group, and they wanted to know what meditation is. And I said, so I, I went into my explanation, something like I'm doing now, you know. And I tried to tell them what meditation is, what you do with it and everything. And, I looked out there and I could see they weren't getting it. You know, they just weren't. They're just kind of like, what's he talking about, you know? So I looked at David, you know, I thought, I said, David, how would you put it? And David said, stay home. He's a man of few words. <laughs> and I looked out and they got it, you know? <laughs> and I thought, why didn't I ask him first? Because <laughs> I could have saved myself all this explanation. It was just stay home. Before we begin, uh, I was first taught to sit by Catherine Thonis, a Soto nun. And uh, all she did was show me the posture and how to sit. I was cross-legged. And, and then I asked her, I said, well, okay, so what am I supposed to learn from this? What is this supposed to do? And she said, the sitting will teach you that. How is it? Just sit and the sitting will teach you that. That's the best instruction I ever got in my life. That's always been my teacher, foremost before any other, just this moment where I sit still and let the thing unfold and try to discover what's actually happening here. So if you like, you could sit a, a period of Chikantaza or if not, whatever meditation you're comfortable with. And well, let's do that for, oh, let's say maybe about 15 minutes, something like that. That'd be good.
There it passed too soon, didn't it? <clears throat> Perhaps just a moment. If uh, any of you did try something a little different, if you tried just sitting, just sheik and taza, what what experiences did you have? <clears throat> We have a tradition in, in Zen that if you want to speak, you make gasho. And if I see you, then I will acknowledge you. Yes. Well, I had moments of it, and I felt real peaceful because I haven't sat with a group for about four months. So there, were, there was real peacefulness, and then I had smell sensations, and then I had sound sensations, and I just kind of noted those the way I've been uh-huh. taught to do, smelling, thinking, hearing, and, and that kind of thing. But uh-huh. it's really nice, and I wonder what it would be like to just totally let go and not anchor with the breath, because I don't normally do that. And I'm, I'm a little scared I'd fall asleep. Uh-huh. So you just noticed then these things passing by, your, your life of the moment, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Shinryu Suzuki had a really wonderful take on this. He, he said, uh, he thought that each part of the body should do its own zazen independently. <laughs> so he said, you know, let your toes, the toes are doing its zazen, and your knees are doing their zazen, your hands are doing its zazen, your breath is doing its zazen, and even your mind, constructed of thoughts and sensations and feelings is doing its own zazen. He said, it's not your business to interfere <laughs> with your toes zazen, you know? I mean, leave it alone. Leave your mind alone. Let it do its own zazen. Let zazen do its zazen. Zazen's a name in Buddhism, for, in Zen for meditation. Let it do its own thing. It is genuinely a letting it go and watching. So, anyone else? Um, without the tether, I think I became more curious uh-huh. about what would what would be happening, and and um, that made the time go like that. I mean, it was I couldn't believe it was fifteen minutes. I thought, mm-hmm. um, and also the the place where nothing much seems to be happening um, became a lot more um, comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. Don't you think, Sylvia, that curious is like, we could almost say that, that is another word, uh, certainly a part of mindfulness, just mindfulness, just you know, like just showing up for the moment, being present like willing to be there. I sometimes feel that if I'm given a strong tether, then it's a distraction from what's going on. Actually, Nelly, I remember um, on the point of curious, uh, uh, one of the factors of, invest- of, of enlightenment is investigation, anyway. And I remembered the other day a story of uh, an interview that I had with Joseph Goldstein, who was one of my principal uh, and is most uh, of my revered teachers. 
And uh, I'd been practicing for some time, and I was uh, finally, after some period of time, discovering that I actually could concentrate and that it was actually possible for my attention to settle down. And I was working with an anchor at that point um, of, of, of my breath and body sensations around that. But I re and I remember feeling that I, I, I'm so proud of myself. I was on a retreat, and I went to see him for an interview, and I reported, you know, I, I, I've got it. Who knows exactly what I said? But finally I said, you know, I can sit endlessly, and I'm really there with the breath, and I feel wonderful. My body is warm. Nothing hurts me. I feel fine. I'm just really just there. He said, that's very good, Sylvia. He said, now you're starting, really, to be able to practice. That was good so far. Now you got yourself here. Now look around. Now see what's true. You didn't get here for nothing, just to hang out. You know, <laughs> here was to get here so that you could see. And he said it. He said it kinder than that sounded. But really, um, I have all kinds of symbols, that, the pictures that come in my mind. Uh, when I say that, one of them are the uh, those uh, binoculars that are at Sea Cliff. That uh, you, if you look through them, really, you can actually get to see the the animal life that's living on that, those rocks and what's going on and coming and going. But if you're looking over here, you don't see, and over here you don't see so well. So you have to get your eyes first of all. You have to get to be here where you can see, and then. You look around, it wouldn't be wise just to close your eyes and take a nap at that point. Um, but it was a very important time. I just remembered it the other day because I remembered being, I, I remembered how deftly he, I was so proud of myself. He didn't undo the proud. He didn't say, forget about it. But he said, great, now look what you'll be able to see and look around. So I thought about that. Uh, I thought also, uh, Oh, maybe somebody else had something to say, because I had something to say, too. There's somebody. Thank you. Um, I'm one of those people that have, it feels like a teacher should say to me, you should be farther along. Um, I'm always doing that to myself, so I appreciated that reference point. But but your images I had on the Just Stay Home, that was really helpful for me, mm -hmm. because I just feel like I'm always off there. But not always, but there's the judgment. And then, you know, when I did kind of catch myself, you know, doing some kind of planning or whatever, I just kind of said, oh, yeah, you're in Maui. Come on back. So just kind of having those reference points made it lighter. And I appreciated the context of concentration <coughs> that you just offered, Sylvia, because mm -hmm. um, I get confused. You know, like, what is the goal? Mm -hmm. So, kind of having concentration as a skillful means to mm -hmm. be curious, I, mm -hmm. I appreciated that very much. Thank you. Well, thank you. I, I I really think about that concentration is getting myself in front of the glasses mm -hmm. and balanced. Mm -hmm. Now look around. Then you take it out into the world. Mm -hmm. I don't 
concentrating on the breath that I've lost it. And so I've, there's nothing I'm supposed to be doing when if, if I'm just sitting, whatever happens is happening and I can be more aware of what's happening mm -hmm. and because I, al I always wind up correcting myself and having some judgment that I haven't quite, mm -hmm. you know, I've lost the breath somewhere along the way. And I know you're not supposed to do, feel bad like that, but it, it's sort of <laughs> another judgment about the judgment. And it, you know, it can go on endlessly, but just if you're saying, well, just sit, mm -hmm. then there is nothing you're supposed to be doing. And mm -hmm. it's, it's freeing in a certain way. Yes, what, what Sylvia said too has wed this mm -hmm. together to me. Uh, one way that I might speak of my experience of that is uh, being present in the moment and then being present where you are. That is, our lives are taking place, but where is that life taking place? That's the periphery. I need to be here, I need to be present, I need to stay home. At the same time, where are we now? We're at Spirit Rock, right? We're on the planet Earth. It's turning on an axis. It's revolving around the sun. What we are right now is the product, you might say, of the entire universe in this long evolution. What I'm saying is that while I need to be here, which is the focus, the, ca the capacity to just look at the person that's right in front of me, you know, and connect with that person and listen to what they're saying and, and try to understand what's happening at the moment, all of that is happening in this vast periphery, this huge forest of the universe. There's something about that. You know, that stillness in the midst of activity that we have to learn to live with. That, that's why sometimes letting your mind, watching your mind go crazy is a good practice. <laughs> because then you get a chance to sit still while your mind goes crazy. While your thoughts go everywhere and say, oh, look at that. Look at my, what my, my mind's doing. Well, Mine's not my business. I won't mess with it. Let it do its thing, you know. I'm not going to interfere. And yet, you're still home, aren't you? Still right where you are. So I, that's, that's perfect for me, you know, to bring that in, that there is something about, about being here, which is mm -hmm. like a focus. Mm -hmm. And I think when you said about being here, in the 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 here, that... Uh, it seems to me that when I'm able to do that, that there's uh, the moment the uh, oh I guess you could say it in 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 terms of the self disappears, but uh, when my story uh, gives way to the story that's happening to six billion people, six billion human beings at this point mm -hmm. on this rock in space, then my my it's not that my story becomes unimportant. But my story is just one of the six billion stories. And they're all stories that have something to do with each other. And you're saying the fact that we're being here is the product of everything that ever happened. Yeah. In the moment that I really know that, then uh, there really are no victims, no villains, nothing's um, 
you know, the stories that I have about good or bad disappear. Um, last night, yeah, uh, I was, I, when we met last night, I had just come back from uh, spending the day uh, in Pleasanton. I'd never been in Pleasanton before. It's way far away from here. Even I've lived in the Bay Area 50 years. Uh, but in Pleasanton, every, th every Labor Day weekend is a huge convocation of Scottish cultural bagpipers and drummers, mostly. Pipers and drummers and Irish da and dancers. And there are competitions all day long in this arena and that arena. Hundreds or dozens, certainly, of uh, pipe, pipe bands of all levels of competence compete all day long. And um, Eric Daniel Vickman, my grandson, was a, is a member of the King Charles Pipe Band. So he competed. And I went with him from the morning to the night. So I went to bed by the da 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 da, 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 da <laughs> because it all has one beat and it carries on and it imprints itself in your mind. But at one point at the end of the day, so it was really quite like a retreat. You always think, I often think of a retreat as quiet and secluded. There were 600 pipers and drummers to begin <laughs> with, not to speak of all the people who brought them and stayed with them. So there were thousands of people there in this huge arena. And uh, in the final manifestation of the whole day, 600 pipes and drums all marched out in order with the Marine Corps band and played Amazing Grace. So 600 bagpipes playing Amazing Grace is an, I see my, 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 I get goose flesh, is a very big experience. And just before the Amazing Grace, which is the ultimate thing, so all day long, stimuli all around, and it's and just for me to recognize that the with the understanding happens everywhere. It doesn't have to happen in a quiet, secluded forest. That was stimulated. It couldn't have been more stimulating. They had amplifying systems amplifying the bagpipes in certain demonstrations. So it was all day. But just before the final piece, the Marine Corps band played whatever they play when they lower the colors, and there's an honor guard that takes the flags down. So they are playing, and I look, uh, and I'm way up in the, in the stands watching, and I look right behind me, as I'm st and everybody stands up for the lowering of the colors, I look behind me, and there's three men, probably my age, maybe a little younger, but, uh, in uh, wearing, uh, I think, Veterans of Foreign Wars hats, all standing at attention. And uh, right in front of me was a young boy wearing um, Air Force fatigues. And he really, it's my age, but he looked 15. You know, he really looked very young to be, but they were Air Force fatigues. And normally, seeing these old men of, of probably the Vietnam War, uh, seeing this young boy now maybe about to go to war, my mind would make a zillion stories about war and who I like and who I don't like and who I'm mad at and what I think about wars. It could make a million narratives in a second about that. And uh, somehow, 
I think from the place that my mind was in, just being still, actually, from all of this paying attention all day long. I looked at them both, and I wept a little bit, but it was just an overwhelm of feeling. Look at everybody doing everything. I wasn't mad at anybody. I didn't think any of my mad thoughts about wars. It was as if my mind in that moment was at that place out here where everything is just the way it is because of everything that already was. And it couldn't be different. And it's not a problem with it. It just is. And, you know, it's a, the world is so full of a number of things. I think we should all be as happy as kings. That, maybe, that it's just a miraculous thing here floating in space is this incredible unfolding drama. And I'm part of it. And what I do makes a difference, even though I am one of more than six billion human beings. I am part of the future unfolding of this scene. And it was just a really a moment of very sweetness for me, with my mind wide enough not to be able to catch any story and tell it. Like, no, no... Uh, no fence on the pasture. You know, that, uh, that everything could come in and go out. Nothing got caught. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that makes sense. So I thought about that while we it's sat. It's like Sangha, isn't it? It's yeah. like we say in Zen, we say, well, Zen lets everything in. Yeah. No yeah. one gets shown, no one gets yeah. excluded. Bodhisattva never gives up on anyone or anything. And, and you stop having ideas about them. They're just yeah. people doing the only thing they could possibly do it at this mm -hmm. point or any point. Because we're always doing the only thing we could possibly be doing at that point. If there were... Um... <laughs> it's early in the day, but and it never fails that I say something that I am yet... Yeah, I see you. Uh, it's early in the day, but I'll say it now so I don't have to say it. it. never fails that I spend a day here, that it does not come up, that uh, I am moved suddenly to say uh, Gwen's line. Gwen is a long-time student at Spirit Rock. I think she moved back east. I haven't seen her in the longest time. But at one point, at the end of some Wednesday morning discussion, and it's too long of a story to tell about, we were talking about maybe the, the 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 sense in after some practice that life was a manageable event and that everybody had problems and everybody struggled and that when we meet each other somewhere if we say to each other we recognize each other as sangha members and we say hello how are you and the other person says i'm fine how are you and i say i'm fine that we understand that i'm fine does not mean there are no challenges in my life it means i have a life also but i'm managing i'm fine so everybody said, yes, yes, that's what it means. I'm fine means I'm managing. Gwen said, you know, I never say I'm fine. If someone says to me, how are you, Gwen? I say, I couldn't be better because I couldn't. <laughs> and that's about the best. <laughs> that's good. So even when I am wretched and, do, and I'm ashamed of myself. If I could, if be I, better, could, I, if I would have. Yeah. It's, it's like the single best piece oh. of Dharma. And it didn't come from up here, it came from down there 10 years ago. And it never <laughs> fails that there's a moment in a day that it pops into my mind. Now it can be in your mind, but it's, it's Gwen citation. That's a treasure. I'm holding on to that one. Anyway, what were you going to ask? Yeah.
Um, so I like that. I couldn't be better. And the idea that nothing got caught, because one of the things that as I learn mindfulness and I learn wise speech, I'm having troubles um, because before I was learning these practices and before I practiced, I wanted to be an eternal optimist that no matter what I heard, I would try to turn it to the positive. And so that's kind of ingrained in my way of thinking that I always look for the positive, but that turns out, so I constantly give compliments. I love to notice what's good and I notice, but that's the other side, that's a side you will, and so I wonder about, uh, I'm trying not to make good judgments either, so so that's where I get fouled up, so I think you started to touch on it when you said nothing got caught, mm. and so I don't know if you have any comments on that, but I just always want to be positive, and I can't seem to reconcile, reconcile my being positive with just noticing things, and then they go on, mm. you know? I mean, that's hardly worth commenting on, mm -hmm. that things are fine. <laughs> mm. I'll think a little bit more. Maybe you have a thought. And I, because it, it's a long-er discussion, I think. I forgot your name. Melinda. Melinda. Sorry about that. Because um, it's really the discussion of caught in a view uh, and... Uh, Mistaking a view for a solid thing, uh, where it's just a view. Um, but I think it's a, I think it's probably a longer discussion. I'll try to think about it throughout the day and and bring it back. I want to say something just about the logistics. We're just going on and on, and we'll sit in another few minutes. Uh, in any time in this morning, because we'll we'll have a uh, our lunchtime at twelve thirty. You have a need to use the facilities. Just go and come back. Uh, and I'd like to invite you to use the space that we hear together in this room, if it's all right with you. I should have said it earlier, as a retreat for today. So if we could for now, if you go or come, we just not visit with each other. Okay, I'd, I'd like to respond to Melinda's thing about wanting to be positive. You know, do it, do it right, and and um, I I relate that somehow to when I first looked at you know the four noble truths and the eightfold path, and the first noble truth is that suffering exists, dukkha, and I felt relieved, and the reason I was is well, I had some suffering, but I thought well then that's not a problem, is it? <laughs> it was like being given permission for all sorts of what I felt to be embarrassing, even horrid imperfections, you know, and not being able to hold in mind a positive view of life because everything wasn't positive. Some things were really cruel. Some things were really hurtful. But there was this encouragement in the Buddha to, you know, to discover those things which where we create our own suffering and to accept those areas in which we don't. I was one time working with a couple, it was actually a friend of mine was a, a psych, 
psychiatrist, psychologist in Southern California. And he had a very, he had clients and they all knew how to do their counseling well. You know, they were really adept at that. So he felt like, well, nothing was ever happening. So he had got this idea that uh, since I knew the mountains really well, they would take them up into the mountains where they'd be deprived of all their ordinary supports and see if something happened to them up there, you know, when the mosquitoes started to get them and it was cold and they had to walk long times on trails. And I was going to be going along and I would be a kind of a, you know, an assistant, a co-counselor, and I would be the field guide. Or this young couple that kind of attached themselves to me, they adopted me. And their thing was that they had marital problems. Now they had every marital problem you can think. You know, they had problems with sex, they had problems with finance, they had problems with religion, they had problems with philosophical viewpoint, everything. They were really good at it. And they had all these problems. <laughs> and they would follow me around, you know. Uh, one time I was trying to get away from them because to tell you the truth, I was getting tired of, you know, hearing about their problems. They were experts. <coughs> At, um, at this, at making suffering, making imperfection, something really wrong. So I guess every, all these little areas, they didn't, they didn't get it going just exactly right. So somehow that was not a good thing. But one day I was out, I was out walking. I went out walking in the meadow, you know, alongside a big lake way up in the high Sierra, and they caught up with me. <laughs> And they sort of started in again. They wanted a little counseling from me. I didn't have anything to say to them. So what came to mind, what I said, I can't believe I said it. I said, well, you know, the problem is, the real problem is that your problems aren't very interesting. <laughs> you know, now, <laughs> what you need, what you need is you need some fresh problems, you know, <laughs> get this thing working. Well, they were a very bright couple, and they caught on to that. And I was trying to generate some fresh problems for them to have, but they were way ahead of me. They were coming up with some real buttes. <laughs> they got it. You know, like, they got that somehow their lives didn't have to be optimistic. They didn't have to be perfect. It was okay to stumble along and be ordinarily human. Uh, later, I got a letter from them, and they, they said, well, they decided that they would just give up marital problems altogether. They weren't that much fun, <laughs> and they were very wealthy, so they had bought themselves a yacht, and they were planning to sail around the world. <laughs> so I don't know. I think that's some, there's something in there about what you're saying that touches me in that way, and that is we have permission to not be positive doesn't have to be positive. It's like Sylvia was saying so beautifully that um, these people can be absolutely dedicated to the notion of warfare and its essential purpose in our culture. And I can disagree with them wholeheartedly, have since I was 14 years old and, and read John Heresy's account of Hiroshima. So I don't believe that, but on the other hand, they do perhaps, and that's where they are. And somehow I have to absorb that. They have to, be, they have to be part of my family. I have to love them, you know? So, so you can be just as negative as you want. That's my, that would be my <laughs> idea. <right. laughs>
you try that out. It can be fun. Just crank about things for a while and see how that feels. <laughs> One more, and then we'll do a meditation. Go ahead. Some years ago at Vajrapani, uh, they had the book by Lama Zopa Rinpoche uh, entitled, if I remember correctly, How to Turn Your Suffering into Happiness. And it had a number of suggestions in it, many of which didn't work for me at all. But one of them is when anything happens that you're dismayed by to find the positive in that. So if you break your favorite glass, you know, great, now I have less clutter or I can get another one. Uh, and my experience has been that this works very effectively for me for reducing my suffering. So what occurs to me is that perhaps this is a, as you were saying about meditation earlier, Sylvia, a step along the path, not the end of the path. But meanwhile, until we get to the point where our mind is large and there is no suffering anymore, uh, and again, to use your, your terminology again, uh, why not have the editorial comments more positive as a means to make it more manageable? Mm -hmm. So that, that was my thought about it, and I don't know how, how does that fit. I'm trying to think a little bit because I'm, I'm, I got I was starting to think about what you, the the term editorial comments because I I think it's an important one and I have something to say about it. You know, uh, if that works, somebody's just written a book called Whatever Works. Oh, it's Woody Allen. It's a film called Whatever Works. You know, <laughs> if your mind ties itself in a knot, my best glass. And if it works for you to say, you know, all right, less clutter, and the mind relaxes its grip for a minute, okay. Uh, I can't, I, you know, there's a certain way in which uh, it's addressing the, the situation. You're telling yourself it's gone. Maybe it makes your mind relax. My own sense is when my mind relaxes, it tells itself the truest thing. I really feel ratchet about that glass being gone. It meant so much for me. But it is gone. But if it's the in-between step in allowing my mind, when my mind relaxes, it tells me the real, the real story. And maybe whatever is a skillful means to have it relax. And, and so for me, what this was, I mean, it, it, initially it feels fake, and you know, like, yeah. that isn't really true. But it's, it's the mind training, and I think he talks about this as coming from the Shambhala mind training so soon my mind gets into the habit of that and it finds that just as believable as it did the oh things are awful but it, I, I'd like to I'd like also to say a word about mind training um, well first I want to go back to the editorial for a minute I think we'll be all right uh, uh, because I, I was very glad I just want to enter it into the conversation the editorial comments that the mind makes all the time. You mentioned it about the, the mind has a thought, then it makes a judgment. I'm, I'm meditating poorly now. I have a, that was so you have a judgment about I'm meditating, then you have a judgment about I shouldn't have a judgment. The mind is perennially commenting on experience. Um, 
uh, when, when Lynn began to do his meditation instructions, the first thought I had, even before I was, heard the whole instruction and enjoyed it, I thought to myself, oh, Zen is good. I should have done more Zen. It didn't start yet. It didn't start. But you have to catch the mind doing those little thoughts. Then I thought, I'll, I, I didn't mention to Lynn that I've, I've never done a Sushin. But I tried, I made an effort to get to go to one once many years ago. It's a tiny story that I learned about. But as my mind, you know, picked out that story, I learned something else from it that, lo, these 20 or 30 years since the story, I didn't quite learn. Uh, because it's a long time ago, maybe 25, 30 years ago, where I had begun my Vipassana practice. And I had some time out from work, I guess, that I could plan to be away. And there wasn't a retreat happening, in a mindfulness retreat that was convenient. But I saw that, that there was a session happening at the San Francisco Zen Center. So I thought, well, I'll go do that. And so I, I phoned over, and the person I spoke to said, uh, have you had experience with Zazen? I said, no, but you know, I'm, a, you know, I'm a, a Vipassana practitioner, and uh, I think I'll be all right. And he said, well, uh, you'll have to speak with Robert, the, the retreat master, and he's not here now. So um, I'll have him call you back, took my phone number. I came home the next day and found a message from Robert, the retreat master, because he'd called and I wasn't home. So now I call back the Zen Center, get the same person, uh, and Robert's not there. So... Uh, I said, in a moment of inattentive, I said, uh, you know, that's funny. I called Robert and he wasn't there, then he called me and I wasn't there, and now I'm calling him and he's not there. Maybe this means, maybe it's a sign, it means I shouldn't sit the sashim. He said, I think it's just a sign that Robert isn't here. You know, but, you know, and what I understood about that story, you know, I'm funny and I'm glib, you know, and I tend to have a little, I inherited from my father that make a joke out of everything. Thing. But, but when you think about it, it's, it's also the mind rushing to make a conclusion, the, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the uh, editorial mind. This means that the, doesn't mean anything. We are, the mind is constantly looking to see what does this mean and can I figure it out. I think it's I think it's a I think it's a strategic and important piece of of brain functioning. By the way, I think if we didn't have that piece, we'd be in bad trouble. So I don't want a bad mouth in any way. That level of ego functioning. I read yesterday. It's completely. This is off. Not off the topic because nothing, as Lynn said, is off the topic. Who do you think is the largest, best-selling novelist in the history of novels? Sold more, more books of this person sold than any other novelist. Do you know? Daniel. I don't. Not Daniel Steele. <laughs> Not Dr. Stu's. Two billion books in 47 languages. Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie wrote 67 detective stories. And there's recently been a book that's a sort of an exegesis, a, a, a discussion, someone's 
life study is the work of Agatha Christie. But the, the thesis of this writer was that people loved it. Every, every year a new one came out and millions of people bought it because, and they all had much the same formula, but what they liked is that the heroine figured it out, that there was something that people couldn't figure out that she figured out by careful deduction. And the, the conclusion they come to is that it's soothing to people to think that if you applied yourself, you could figure it out. Because I think fundamentally we all have this great conundrum. What are we going to do with this life? And how are we going to do it in a way that when, not even when we finish it, we'll feel all right, but when we're doing it, we'll feel all right. More important when we're doing it than when we finish it, actually. When doing it, we'll feel all right. That that is a constant question. How can I feel all right in this life? And comfortable and meaningful and at ease and at home. I love that phrase about, that Lynn said about be at home. I like to say to people when we begin a meditation practice, make yourself at home. And in my mind, it always has a, an image of I put up my feet. And I don't put it at my feet here, but make yourself at home has a certain feeling about it. Okay, be comfortable. How are we going to be comfortable in our lives? And that, the, and that, what well, and the idea that we could figure out a really hard problem—that's the really hardest problem of all. So mm -hmm. I thought about that. Isn't yeah. that interesting? Right. And there's someone we missed back here twice. Oh, good. Um, yes. Right. Please. Yeah. I See, Julie Butterfly Hill spoke in the Berkeley Sangha, and commenting on something you just said, she said about doing service for no reason, and that relates to me. It's like, just live my life for no reason, just be mm -hmm. kind and being the best person that I can be. I don't have to have a reason for everything, and I just wanted to comment on that. Thank you, Rosalind. Are you ready to sit again? little sitting. I think you'll find I'm going to say the instructions that I most give these days. when we talk about them afterwards, I'll tell you something about the evolution, maybe, of how I've given meditation instructions over the years. The reason I give this, this instruction for two reasons. One of them is I find it tremendously consoling. The instruction itself is consoling. Uh, it's um, an, a way of saying the instructions for mindful attention that I heard, I learned from uh, Ajahn Amaro Bhikkhu, who uh, until recently was uh, our neighbor up in Mendocino County and has now moved back to be the abbot of uh, a monastery in London. Ajahn Amaro says the instructions this way. He says, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body, and let it stay that way. That's half the instruction. The other half 
is only be alert to whatever arises to disturb that natural peace and ease. And then notice it. And then again, if you wanted, you could follow that with, and then let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease. I like it so much because the idea that it's there, we don't have to get there. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and just stay there. <coughs> Only pay attention to whatever arises to disturb that natural peace and ease. Notice it. And then let the mind and body. So we'll sit for 15 minutes.
I'd like to uh, suggest that because we have not stood up, uh, some of us, in an hour, um, almost two, that we continue this meditation for 10 minutes more. And I'd like to suggest that you use the 10 minutes for whatever, if you need to use the restroom, but also to walk back and forth at some little part of the room just to move your body for 10 minutes. Let's keep it in silence and let's be back in our seats in 10 minutes.
In a little while, both Lynn and I will teach again about the theme we've been thinking about um, beginning and then sharing with you uh, throughout the day. But just to finish up with our meditation practice, um, I'd be interested in uh, knowing if you had any particular response to your those meditation instructions we just worked with about let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease, how that experience was for you, how it was different from... What have you noticed about it? What would you like to say? Please. My name is Margaret. I think the combination of the instruction, but then also something you just said prior to that about kind of the bigger question of how do we live this life? Why are we here? What What's this about? Led to a really, at first, kind of trying to be in my natural calm. And then I had a very intense reaction where I got very hot and my scalp completely contracted. And And then all of a sudden, it was kind of like I went, oh, the idea of what's this life about? And I realized that I've been at kind of loose ends because what I thought it was about, raising children, helping my parents die in a nice way, having a career, all that's kind of done. And so I was kind of left in this place. And I think you look a lot like my mother. So I think that that was part of kind of what stimulated this. And then after this intense heat and contraction, it then kind of went away. It was like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's what I need to kind of be focusing on That because my life had so much structure and I knew what it was about, and now I don't, which is probably a good thing. Well, thank you very much, Margaret, for that, for that sharing. Um, and uh, in, uh, just because you... you, you uh, uh, mentioned this fairly remarkable um, physical experience that happened. I want to say that sometimes that happens, that suddenly this kind of a dramatic energetic event in the body uh, that comes and goes and uh, it's, uh, I don't know why it's all, uh, for every single reason, time it's the same reason, but sometimes I think it's because we've suddenly really understood something. Uh, and it comes and goes, and it actually sounded to me, uh, I was very happy when you went on and said, and then what we really meant was this, and it just, it was just an event, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, when you said, just let your mind and body just ease, um, when you uh, said, let just your mind and body be at ease, I just let myself be. And um, but I, it was nice. Who doesn't like that? I mean, you don't have to worry about anything. But I just felt like I was. Um, I saw my patterns and um, of my mind and everything. And uh, it's like um, I'm because uh, I've been meditating on and off for many years. So I thought uh, I'm improving. But I realize I'm not, uh, and I'm still stuck in those patterns. I, in, in some ways, I'm okay with it now, 
than I was before. But I feel like I'm just watching my patterns and I'm not doing anything about it. I'm not happy with some of them, which I know it's in my best interest to change them. But um, I don't know. It's it's not. It's comforting, but it's not comforting in some ways where it's like, uh, okay, so they're just going to stay and I'm not going to improve. <laughs> What's your name? Monica. Monica. Thank you very much for, the, for your question. You know, again, any one of these questions we could talk a whole day and I don't know you very well. But just in the way that you put it out and you said, I sat there and who doesn't like to sit peaceful well everybody does but it's it's not that it's not that easy so I'm happy that it happened for you that you said I could do that I just sitting there peaceful and easy and whoops there go all my patterns right playing by you know and I thought to myself yeah I guess that's how it is there go all the patterns but when in in the time that I was more held captive by the patterns of my mind they weren't just there they really held me captive and I couldn't just sit easy and and see them. They really drove my life one way or another. Now, uh, uh, and I had hoped, by the way, that those imprints and patterns would disappear and go away altogether. And uh, so far, I think it's fair for me to say, I think they're attenuated a little bit. But, you know, I see them all the time to the degree that I see them. And they're just doing their thing, but not... Uh, not um, causing me, not forming in me any imperative to listen to them and have them push me around. I feel myself quite liberated. So I wouldn't say about uh, not making any progress. There's my old pattern. Hello, old pattern, you know, see you around. Uh, you know. <laughs> and who wouldn't like to change their old pattern with someone else? We would get rid of it. But there it comes circling back around again. I have a feeling that uh, that uh, the the brain may comes wired like with certain cookie cutters. It's a very mixed in LA metaphor, and uh, <laughs> Lynn, who's a, a many years writing teacher, will say it's a terrible mixed metaphor. But the brain comes wired in in the way the cookie cutters come cut in certain shapes. No matter how much I want this round cookie cutter to cut out a square shape, it's not going to do it because it cuts out that other kind of shape. My mind will make catastrophic thoughts at any possible, even when there isn't any possible cause. It just does it. It's like one of the things that it's one of its cookie cutters. But I don't have to believe it. It's just, I used to resent it a lot too, but actually I've gotten to, I wouldn't say I embrace it. That would be pushing it. But, yeah, that, that pushes it a little bit. But I say to myself, and this is really, I don't think this is false, da, da, da. Uh, I think if, since it goes to some lengths to make possible catastrophe out of nothing, I think to myself, that's probably what enables me to write. I can be a little bit fantastic and uh, imagine things that could never happen. So maybe it's good. Maybe it's, you know, it doesn't matter if it's good or it's bad, it's what I've got. So... Uh, but thank you for sharing anyway. Thank you. Monica, there's, a, there's an old uh, story, desert story, attributed to Sisuus, one of the desert fathers, uh, where a monk came to see 
Sisuus, and he said, uh, I have fallen. You know, meaning in general, I made some kind of a mistake. And Sisuus said, well, I'll get up again. He said, well, I did, but I have to say I fell again. He said, well, get up again. He says, well, I'm doing that, but he says, I keep on falling. And Sisuus said, never fall down without getting up. <laughs> <laughs> and in Zen, uh, particularly in the Zen tradition, the old Zen masters referred to life as 10,000 beautiful mistakes. I love that beautiful. You know, it's, it's our messy being. We've got our little patterns and habits. And, yeah, <laughs> 10,000 beautiful mistakes. We're all mistakes. I consider it my birthright as a human being <laughs> to be in error, you know, and, and no one's going to deprive me of that. <laughs> There's someone over here, Sylvia. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> my, name is, <clears throat> my name is Charlotte, and thank you very much for this pattern of um, the day. It's uh, almost impossible for me to hear other people speak about their experience and not want to speak about my own. So um, that was um, reminded me of a cartoon that I saw at, in the New Yorker. It was two couples at a cocktail party, and one was responding, we used to think that we were just going through a rough patch, and now we see that it's our life. <laughs> and um, we had been we had been going through a rough patch for about nine years, and um, having been a longtime practitioner and um, having on board a number of ways of handling of Buddhist and other sorts of uh, spiritual ways of handling adversity, it was of a, a real benefit. So um, the one thing that has been um, with me is it is what it is, and that's it. It just is what it is. And that got me, you know, that was really very, very helpful because we were at points um, facing, oh, this is, you know, the dire, they like make a, oh, this is, and, and you know, whatever. So um, the getting back to what happened today was that I had been used to tolerating things that I didn't like, and uh, sort of like eating your greens. You know, I just didn't like it. I would sit, I would meditate, I would to, to relieve the pain. I would do all of this that I was supposed to do, and. And I kind of dragging my feet. I know it's good for me, therefore I will do it. And today, actually sitting, um, you know, just let the sitting teach me, I sat and I, I was more, I was going, okay, I'm supposed to sit, but damn it, I'm not going to do it the way I was taught you know, like 15 years ago where I had to touch my eyebrows. And I, to <laughs> I was um, surprised that I was more comfortable sitting in a in a pose that was a, you know appropriate, it was actually grounded, and I felt very good doing that. And I went, well, wait a minute, mm -hmm. you know, how can that be? I said, it doesn't matter. It just is. Mm -hmm. How interesting! Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Indeed. And, and, and in a certain sense, you know, I think uh, we both said in different ways, just sit there. Yeah, we got to go. We did. <laughs> we hit it, you know. We both said just sit there uh, and uh, sit there and uh, the cow will come home, you know. That, yeah. yeah. You don't have to do anything about it, right. you know. that. Uh, um, I, I maybe want, I know I, Lynette was going to talk next, but I'm going to add one more thing to sit there and the cow will come home. Um, You said something earlier about it's the same old thought. Of, you know, it's, you know. So you fret a while, and then you get tired of fretting. It's like the mind by itself mm -hmm. figures out. It goes wherever it goes, and it says forget mm -hmm. about it and comes back. It's not our business. You don't have to do it. It's not our business. You know. Uh, I had the. I have. I have two images that I like a lot. One is make yourself at home, and the other is um, apropos of how often the mind goes to Maui or the next Thanksgiving. <laughs> I think about an image of uh, walking up Broadway in New York City. The people who've heard me before know I love this image. I, I, I have friends in New York. I visit sometime. And, uh, yeah, it's dazzling. And I think to myself, if I were on 42nd Street and I wanted to walk to 72nd Street in Broadway, it's quite straightforward. It's 30 small blocks. You could just set out and you could almost see where you're going and get there. But I could be walking along, and uh, there are so many movie theaters and plays and musicals. I could easily, if I weren't paying attention to this decision, slip into a matinee over here and be in there for a while and say, wait a minute, I don't mean to be in this matinee. I was on my way to 72nd Street. Okay, let's go, out, we'll go a little bit more. Zip. Now I'm in this far west, uh, you know, um, travelogue. Okay, wait, I didn't mean to be here. I'm out. Okay, now I'm forward. But look at this cookware in the window of Macy's. Whoop, I'm making next Thanksgiving dinner. That there's a million doorways that you can step into because they're playing an interesting, they're playing, an, you know, it's like one of those TVs with a million things that you can step in here, step in here, step in here. And the mind steps in. When you're sitting here, you don't suddenly start to think, Okay, now I'm going to think about what I'm going to shop for on the way that I go home tonight. All of a sudden, the mind is doing that. Or oh, what am I going to shop for for Thanksgiving? My sister-in-law who doesn't like turkey is coming. Where did that come from? You didn't tell yourself, now think about Thanksgiving. The mind all of a sudden steps into a movie called Next Thanksgiving, and what should I do about it? And, but then it says, whoops, I'm in a movie. Okay, out. Now you go a little bit more, and it steps into another movie. Say, I really don't like this girlfriend that my son is going with. What should I do? You know, it's just going all the time to the movies. And if I sit here, and my instruction to myself is, don't do anything about it, all of a sudden I realize Thanksgiving's a long way away, and it's gone. Or, you know, he's going to do what he's going to do, it's gone. You know, that if I sit, somehow my own natural wisdom reinstates itself, takes care of the problem one way or another. He's going to do what he's going to do. Thanksgiving's far away. This is this, this is that. And I'm right back here. I didn't have to trouble myself. Like people say, I'll get it if you say, don't bother. You, know? <laughs> you don't need to bother yourself. Uh, so uh, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a way in which I hope that I'm um, 
saying it that doesn't sound sort of uh, indifferent, don't bother, but it's not indifferent, it's just enduring wisdom. Uh, I, a couple of years ago, uh, and I love this story, and then Len is going to teach, because it has to do with what you learn when somebody was actually doing something. Anyway, on the way to... Um, I was sitting in a, in, a, in a meditation retreat, being led by Ajahn Sumedho, who's a very revered teacher of mine. I like him very much. He's uh, Brit. He's lives lived in Britain for many years, but born here in California. Uh, just uh, he's our age, somewhere between the two of us, and I admire him a lot. And he was uh, old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I admire him a lot. A lot of things I admire about him. He said I start, I was touring in Thailand, but I didn't know what to do with my life, and I stopped into Ajahn Chah's. Uh, uh, um, uh, monastery just to see what it was about and, and he intrigued me so I thought well I guess I'll study with this person for a while maybe I'll take robes for two years and then I'll go back to my life and he said but you know I liked it so I never left and this is 40 years ago so anyway he was teaching and he was saying you know it happens all the time no matter how much practice you've done that your mind ties itself in a knot and it just ties itself in a knot, and, and it's painful. He said, when my mind ties itself in a knot, and I realize it, I say to myself, it's like this. And then it unties. And he did make this particular gesture. He said, I say to myself, it's just like this. Somebody said it earlier, it's what it is. It's just like this. And the mind unties itself, and I'm all right. And I was so moved in that moment, you know, all these stories about the Zen master says something and it's just in a certain tone of voice and you get it and it's really a transmission. And they could have said it a thousand times before and you didn't get it, but in that moment you did get it. So he said, I say to myself, it's like this and I'm fine. And I was so moved. The next two or three years, wherever I was teaching, it would come up often. I'd say, Ajahn Sumedho said that, da, da, da. and he was talking, and he said, I'd say to myself, it's like this. Do this little gesture, and I just got it. Like the stories in the, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, canon about the Buddha holds up a lotus leaf and someone gets it. So Ajahn Sumedho said. Some years after that, I was with Ajahn Sumedho again in some sort of a conference meeting, and we were talking to each other. And I said, you were so helpful to me that last time I was sitting and you were teaching. And the teaching you gave, I taught it all over the, all over the world, actually. I said, you know, you talked about what to do when the mind ties itself in a knot. And I said, and the way you said it, you said, to me, you said I say to myself, it's like this. You did this little gesture, and I got it. So I've been going all over the world and saying, it's like this, and making this little gesture. People are getting it. And he said, really? I did that. <laughs> so I think really he did it. But, you know, <laughs> but he, either, he did or he didn't. But, but I, my experience was that he did it. And my experience was that a certain clarity in me arose that led me then to go around. I was always very careful to say, uh, make this gesture, and people say, well, teenagers do that all the time. They say, whatever. But, 
But whatever is not right, because when they say whatever, that's, they're blowing you off, you know. It's indifference, you know. Have it your way. There's a certain amount of negativity in that whatever. So, which it wasn't there. It, it, this is, it's like this. So, it's like this. <laughs> you go. <laughs> I just want to sit with that. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, we thought that we'd talk a little bit about what we've been talking about is what it turns out now. Because, um, But to give some sense of where we've been going, I think, this morning a lot, is we have a, a traditional, well-worn Buddhist path. I mean, we have the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. We have numerous teachings. Personally, I'm, I'm deeply grateful for them. And they're well-worn because they're reliable. Because if you, if you walk those paths, it'll take you deep into the land of the Dharma. That, that's absolutely true. And yet, you have to walk the path yourself. And when you do that, then all these variations begin to take place. I mean, let's say, for example, I've spent a lot of time going up into the high Sierra, particularly love going up into the mountains there, and for years would do that every year. So let's say if I want to get to Sandpiper Lake at the foot of Seven Gables Mountain, there is a trail that will lead me there, and I can follow that trail and I can get there. But what about all the surrounding country, all the peripheral forest alongside the trail? You know, that might be fun. So I got so that typically on the first day, in order to get up into an elevation where you can begin to cross country, I would follow the trail. And after that, I was never on the trail. You know, I just loved going off, off trail. And, and we've been doing a lot of that this morning. We're talking about what that's like to go off trail, you know, to let go for a moment of a specific teaching and see what happens if we move along on our own. So I think that going cross-country in the mountains, the Dharma is very much the same. You know, like, what, what will we find in uncharted territories that are adjacent to the traditional paths. You know, what kind of things will we run into there? Uh, I have, for example, a copy of Emerson's essays. I've had it since I was a teenager. It was published at uh, Random House, I think, in 1940. And uh, I was a teenager. I was young when I started reading it. And I read it and reread it and reread it. I still have the book. It shows the where. It's got yellowed pages in it now. And I reread it partly because it was very challenging for me. It was difficult, still is at times. But also because I loved what Emerson was saying. And some of the things I found there, for example, Emerson wrote this in an essay that I think he published this in, in 1836. Uh, and one of the essays in that collection was called Self-Reliance, in which he wrote, No law can be sacred to me but that of my nature. That's pretty interesting. It reminds me of a young woman that I saw take um, the precepts. And um, so, you know, I, I will, you know, do not kill, do not steal, do not lie, that sort of thing. 
10 of them, 10 grave precepts. And so she took every precept, but each time she said, in so long as it does not um, interfere with the truth of my heart. So I thought, well, did she take the precepts or not? Because she gave herself, you know, a way to, to not follow any of them if they didn't coincide with the moment. You see, the truth of her heart would be the moment, the actual circumstance that she was in at the time. For example, take do not lie. I remember the time that my mother went out and she bought a new hat. I hadn't seen it yet. And she wanted to go out to lunch with her, some friends of hers. My mother was very beautiful, you know, and, and I saw the hat just as she was at the door on her way out to have this luncheon with her friends. And I don't know how others would have taken it, but the hat was horrid, you know, it didn't do anything for her at all. And she said, how do you like my hat, you know? And I said, oh, it's beautiful, Mom, <laughs> you know. And I, I, I imagine that the, the people at the lunch and the other ladies probably thought it wasn't a very good hat at all, but they were all complimenting her. And the downside of that, of course, was she wore it all the time. <laughs> and then eventually, I was really glad when she got another hat. But you can see what I mean. The woman, the young woman taking the Jukai ceremony, the precepts was right, you know, to reserve that space in her that would go off trail when necessary. You know, will there not be a time in which to tell the truth would be to tell a very harsh and unnecessary truth? You know, maybe it would be better to not find yourself necessary to do that. So whereas you can't really find yourself around in the world if you're always telling yourself falsehoods, that's obvious. So the traditional path is very much there and essential and something for us to be mindful of. But then at the same time, if we try to follow it rote and we don't adapt to the exact moment, then we make terrible mistakes. So that, that's sort of what we've been doing. And uh, the Dharma is very much like that. So there is Emerson's self-reliance and the thing that he said about uh, following no law can be sacred to me but that of my nature. Good and bad are but names very readily transferable to that or this. You see. The only right is what, after, is, what is after my constitution. The only wrong. What is against it. Now if you're young as I was, that kind of thing really resonates because you're a rebel already, you know. <laughs> uh, that he says... Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. I would read Emerson and I'd walk around on tiptoes for a while and know quite to do what to do with the inspiration that he gave me. I just remember that he just kept filling my heart and filling my mind. Well, this was an example, you see, of off trail. This was not, this is even before I'd encountered actual traditional Buddhist teachings. And to this day, I go back to such sources as Emerson, back to such sources as uh, Thoreau's, Walden, and other things of that nature. And, and a poem that I ran into by Mary Oliver uh, some time ago, she's talking about spirit, which we might call Buddha nature, or a source, or the truth, whatever you want to call it. And she said, the spirit likes to dress up like this. She says, ten fingers, ten toes. 
the spirit likes to dress up like this, ten fingers, ten toes. So if I were looking for spirit or sacredness or holiness somewhere else, I'm missing the point because it always manifests in the actual. It's always, you know, like just this. So what I'm thinking about here is the way in which perhaps uh, Zenkai Shibayama, Zenkai Shibayama is a, a fairly contemporary uh, Japanese Rinzai master. And he made a distinction in his case between Zen, two sources of Zen. One, he said, he said, there's the school of Zen or the school of Buddhism, a, a particular tradition of some sort. And then there is what he called Zen itself, which he said is just the truth. That's not attached to any particular tradition. So the Zen tradition does not have a monopoly on Zen itself of the truth, the way things actually are. I like to even reduce it even more than that to it. You know, what is it? And it doesn't belong to anybody. It's just discoverable by innumerable sorts of traditions, innumerable ways to come to it. But nobody invents it. It's just there to be uncovered, to be found. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's what we got to do. Even when you're given a teaching and a true teaching, there's some way in which you have to go off trail and discover it for yourself, walk it for yourself. For example, one time, I, Reverend Chusen, I was up at Shasta Abbey and we were having a retreat and he asked me if I would ring in the meditation in the afternoon and time it. And so he took the gong and the striker and he showed me how to do that. And he said, just invite the gong to sound. Don't, don't hit it. And then he did something that, I don't know, he just, like that, and the gong just sounded, I couldn't hear any concussion, you know, between the striker and the thing, and then that was it. And he went off and left me to practice. So I had the instruction, I had the traditional path. So I started practicing, and honestly, what I was doing sounded more like I was striking a cooking pot with a serving spoon than anything like Reverend Chusen had gotten out of it. And I kept trying, and it didn't seem to me that it was improving very much, you know, like I was making any progress. And I don't know, maybe just frustration and, and, and failure. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, it's not really between me and the gong. I'm not striking the gong at all. The striker is. It's between the striker and the gong. I'm just going to let the striker and the gong take care of it. And I quit practicing because, you know, the whole thing was going to happen in less than an hour then. And I couldn't stand to hear myself strike the thing anymore. <laughs> and then finally the people came in. Oh, I went off trail because I just, I guess I picked up the striker and it, 
It wasn't Reverend Chusen quality, but it was good, you know. <laughs> and it happened on his own. I had moved out of specific instruction and specific energetic intent. And I had allowed myself to let go and let it happen. One time I was sent out to do a, a, a nature walk at Pacific Zen Institute. We were up at Dorothy's Rest in the mountains. It's a beautiful place. And so the Roshi, he, he described what we were to do. We were to go out, and he said, but he said, don't grab at things with your eyes. You know, let them come to you. So I had a traditional teaching. I knew what I was supposed to do, or thought I did. So I started out on my little meditation walk out in the woods along the trail. And the first problem was I didn't really know for certain whether my eyes were grabbing or not. And I even, it's embarrassing to mention this, but I even tried to sort of feign indifference to my surroundings, you know, as if I weren't looking at it. Maybe it would look at me if I didn't look at it. And that didn't seem to be working either. And then at some point I just said, okay, it's not my business whether my eyes are grabbing or not, you know. I'm just going to leave my eyes alone, and they're just going to do what they're going to do, and I'm going to go for a walk. And I don't know if I did anything remotely like what the Roshi had in mind, but I had a perfectly wonderful walk. I came back feeling quite happy about what had gone on. So these are ways in which we have to set out on our own. There's a poem that was given to me years and years ago when I was a student at that time at San Jose State College, back when it was a state college. Um, a, a friend of mine asked me, was I familiar with Gerard Manley Hopkins, the Jesuit priest? And I said, well, no. I mean, I'm from a turkey farm. What would I know about <laughs> Gerard Manley Hopkins? And so um, he gave me a poem and it's been, it's been a dharma for me ever since. It, and, and it expresses the feeling that I have about what we're all finally called to do, what we're asked to do. The, I'll, I'll recite part of the poem for you. It begins with uh, like a series of images. And uh, just to help you enter the poem, the images are of things being what they are in the moment. Uh, it begins with kingfishers. The kingfishers are just being kingfishers, and the dragonflies are just being dragonflies doing what they do. And then uh, a stone, you can imagine this a stone is rolled into a well, and a round well, and it's striking as it goes down. It makes just the sound, you know, that a stone would make inside that well at that time. It's, it's, it's being itself, so to speak. And then there's one where. Uh, a stringed instrument is plucked and it makes the sound that it was intended to make and and, and a big a big bell is swung and it makes the sound that it was intended to make. Those are the beginning images of the poem and goes something like this. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame, as tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring. Like each String tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. And then he turns to us. He says, each 
mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells crying, what I do is me. For that I came. I love, I love that verb, you know. He takes the noun self and he turns it into a verb. Selves. You can conjugate it. I selve, you selves, we are selving, you know. It's wonderful. And, and it's so true. Like we're not nouns so much as we are verbs. We're, we're in motion. And that's why we always have to move with the moment. And it's why we can never really know ahead of time for certain what we should be doing. We can have all the teaching and direction and we need it so badly, but then finally, when we make that move, only we can make that move and there's something. I know this is a belief. Okay, I got a belief. My belief is that there's something that I can do that no one else can do. Maybe no one would ever see it. Maybe I would never, ever understand consequences, how it would reverberate out into the world around me. But nobody but me can be me. And no teaching in the world can ever take the place of that. I have to, I have to go along on my own. And I need all the help I can get as I go. You understand that too. I'm not sounding like, well, I'm here in this world and I'm making my own world for myself. I'm not. I'm deeply indebted to all sorts of things and people and to the tradition of Buddhism itself. But this is what the Buddha had to do. I mean, the Buddha didn't have any Buddhism. (laughs) He was a Hindu. He had to set out on his own. He he was, apparently, he excelled at the teachings. First, (coughs) he practiced some traditional teachings. He excelled at them. But they weren't him. They weren't doing what he'd come to do. Well, he tried severe asceticism and he just got sick, you know, after a while. And he thought, well, this is not really working. He sat down in a tradition. I mean, Buddha wasn't the first one to sit meditation. I mean, that was an old Hindu tradition, probably pre-Hindu tradition, to sit silent meditation. So he took a form But then he had to do his own sitting. And out of that came the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. A treasure. That was his original work. That was his innate genius, which he finally had to trust and step out on his own. And so he became a founder of a great tradition. Well, in our own small ways, we have to all be founders of our own lives is the way I think of it. We have to do that. Now, one of the things about doing this is we're always having to make choices. And we don't often have a whole lot to go on. We don't really know what the consequence will be of doing this instead of that. We just sort of have to calculate it, perhaps, and then we've got to do something. And it may not seem that way to you, but we're making choices virtually every instant of our lives. And some of them may seem really small as we reach for the fork instead of the spoon. That may not seem to amount to anything, but it may in fact make a huge difference. 
We never know how small or how large an event will change something radically within the world around us. One of my favorite poems is Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken, which expresses this. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood and looked to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet, knowing how way leads unto way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere, ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Scary, you know, <laughs> like here we are choosing, <laughs> and it's going to make a difference that I can guarantee you. We can all guarantee ourselves that whatever we do makes a difference. That's the whole, for me, intrinsic and important teaching of karma. Set aside everything else about it. It's about consequence and about the fact that we're always choosing. And it would be good to kind of notice what we're choosing. Yogi Berra, he, he talks about this circumstance that we're in. I really love what he says about it. Yogi Berra, he says, well, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, well, okay, Yogi. But that's it, isn't it? We're always at a fork in the road, and we've always got to take it, and we never know enough. And that's beautiful. That's alive. I'll just finish my comments with a monk who wanted from Zhaozhou, the, the ancient Chinese Zen master, something of a little more certainty. And it was about meditation. And so he asked Jiaojo, he said, well, what is meditation? And Jiaojo said, oh, oh, well, he says, that's non-meditation. And the monk says, well, how can meditation be non-meditation? And Jiaojo said, it's alive. It's alive. You feel that? You can't pin anything down. It's too alive. The moment's always moving. You're never certain. Our world just groans under the tragedy of certainties. People who know what should be done. Who don't really take a look at what's transpiring before their eyes at the moment and adjust and adapt. So that's our theme in general today. And I thought, well, later we'll be talking get some chance talking about some of the places in which unusual dharma has come to us. You remember uh, I said earlier about Yan Min's statement, the whole world is medicine. Well, you might remember that the Buddha uh, sometimes um, portrayed himself as a physician and that the dharma, the thing that he had come to teach, the thing that he alone could teach, was the medicine to cure 
problems that human beings were faced with. Well then, young men, uh, Chinese then master generations afterward, picks that up and says, well, the whole world is medicine. <laughs> so now, the whole world is the physician. The whole world is the Dharma. If you want Dharma, you know, if you come to a retreat to get the truth, the problem with that is you can't isolate any of it here because it's hitting us from all sides at all times, no matter what we happen to be doing. You don't need to go anywhere, finally, to be taught. The moment is always teaching us. So that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> Maybe we should take a breath for a minute. <laughs> it happens for me, probably happens for you too that when, uh, when you hear some, someone speaking something that's so true, as Lynn just did, that a million pings go off in the mind. He says, as you think, oh, yes, yes. I, you notice I took out a pen, because that was, that was my mind saying, oh, 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 because it connects up to a whole, you know, your mind feels like it woke up, doesn't it? You know, because there are a thousand things to say, because it's all true, and it's all right there. And on any one of those sentences, because if you stop there, I could have said, okay. And you stop where you did. And uh, so I, I'm picking up, just to say some things on that, about it's all over all the time, and you never know where, and not necessarily on retreat. And when he said that, I thought to myself, or even on retreat, in a place that you don't expect it, not a Dharma talk, or a deep meditation. Uh, and I remembered uh, in that very retreat that began on uh, July 7th, 1977, where I struggled tremendously. I didn't know anything about practice. I'd never done any. I had a terrible headache from caffeine withdrawal. I really, my, my attention was all over the place. It was very, very hot. It was very, very crowded. It was very, very uncomfortable. And, uh, but there I am, hanging in day after day. And at the end, and not really even understanding why I was there. I was there really because my husband had gone on a retreat and come home and said, so this is great, you should do it. And I'm a pretty amiable person. And mostly my, the history of my life People say you should do this. I say okay. You know, I don't. I, I don't fight a lot with people. It's not my way. Uh, you know, I didn't even practice doing that. It's like, it might even not be a strength. How do I know? But people say do this. It's okay. He said yeah, you got to do this. So, so I went off and I did that. I had plenty of thinking about why was he thinking. But anyway, no clear idea about why I was there. We talk a lot now about clarity of understanding, purpose, none. Anyway, uh, at the end of uh, a sitting, I'm sitting for an hour, my legs are numb, my head hurts, I'm hot. Uh, the bell rang, and everybody was getting up to leave. And um, 
the manager, the person on retreat who's in charge of, did the truck with the vegetables come, did the toilets flush, the, you know, uh, someone is missing, whatever it is, the manager who looks after all those things, came in to talk to the teacher who had been leading that particular sitting. So here I am, and I'm standing up from my place, and I'm, a I'm just going to be walking by the two of them in mid-conversation, and I'm going to pick up just a fragment of a conversation. But I can see that the manager has come in, and he's leaning over, and he's talking to the teacher about some problem, something that's not working. I could see from the furrowed brow and the urgency of the communication, so don't know what's happening. And he finishes, and just then I'm walking by, and the teacher is responding. And he said, in such a gentle voice, well, you know, I'm not into hassling. And then I pass by. That's all piece of the conversation that I heard. And it was like a monumental revelation that in this life, you could choose to not be into hassling. That that was, a, that was a, like a, a piece of news, like leave it alone, you know? Not into hassling was my first Dharma transmission. <laughs> and it was probably over the toilets didn't flush or the, the, you know, the vegetables didn't come. But it was clear that they would work it out, that there'd be a way. It didn't, you know, just didn't, didn't dismiss the problem. Just put it in the context of I'm not into hassling. And I said, oh, so that was, you know, if someone said, what was your first transmission of wisdom? That probably wasn't the first. I would have said that my first transmission of wisdom, I like to say this, who knows, was my, uh, was my grandmother uh, when I was probably uh, five or six or seven years old. My grandmother lived, I'm an only child. I was an only child and an only grandchild. And um, in uh, uh, of um, just middle class people growing up in Brooklyn after uh, during the Second World War, and um, and both of my parents had jobs and went out to work in the day. So my grandmother was my principal caretaker, and uh, so she and she was just tremendously solicitous about all of my physical needs. She cooked meals, she braided my hair, she bathed me, dressed me, got me out of bed, into bed, whatever. She was my principal physical caretaker and she was perfect about it and, um, and sensitive to any kind of physical discomfort I had. But from time to time I'd be, I guess as children are, in a petulant mood or in a cross mood and I, I would complain, I can hear my own voice saying to her, but I'm not happy. <laughs> and I can remember her voice saying in a not unkind way, using, if you know the tradition at all, uh, 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 wording that is traditional word. It's like you take your, you take your answer out of scripture. She said, um, where is it written? that you're supposed to be happy all the time. Mm. Yeah. You know, that, and you know, not in a mean way, I, but it just didn't, didn't blow her away that I was unhappy. Unhappiness happens. Where is it written that you're supposed to be happy all the time? That was a great introduction to the first noble truth of dukkha. Not supposed to be happy all the time. Things don't turn out good all the time. And she had plenty of serious 
serious challenge in her life. She was a, a she, she, uh, her husband had left her in Europe in 1912 to come to the United States and find a, a work. I mean, they were, he'd have to find work as a laborer because nobody could read. Uh, and the war broke out in Europe, so she was left with a one-year-old child and couldn't come until 1920 and had to evacuate her village and live in a displaced persons camp and had a difficult nine years until they came. So she knew a lot about challenge. Uh, but, you know, she was, she was cheerful and laughed and uh, enjoyed her life, but she actually knew that it's not written anywhere that you have to be happy all the time in some deep way. I was listening to Lynn talk about uh, ways that, uh, off trail, that you get a sense of what's true, or, or a sense of something that, that, uh, that marks itself in your mind, that, at least for me, where you say, hmm. Uh, I remember reading Kazantzakis. I was older, but certainly before I met any, any Dharma, reading Zorba the Greek, Reading a report from Greco, that uh -huh. all of my all of my cousin Zakis was is still on my bookshelf right next to all of the Hessa, next to Siddhartha. <laughs> here's all the Hessa, and here is all the cousin Zakis. And uh, there was a, I think it's report to Greco, that's his own autobiography. And I remember reading it as a young adult, and it's it's his own story of the death of his grandfather. And uh, uh, it's, he, said, he tells about living at the bottom of a mountain, in, on a, in a mountain village, his grandfather further up, and the family getting the news that the, the grandfather was dying. And so everybody coming up the mountain, and him riding on a donkey up the mountain to the grandfather's place and farm, and uh, that the grandfather was... Uh, out in the courtyard of this farm, surrounded by his children and his grandchildren. And he, Nikos Kazantzakis, is a young man at the time. And uh, the grandfather having uh, uh, them bring all the grandchildren, he said, I remember my grandfather's big hand on my head, recognizing me, giving me a blessing. And then giving instructions to the family, saying, listen, when I'm gone, Remember to treat the animals well because they're just like us, just in different clothing. And uh, when you put aside the uh, uh, things to bake for the funeral feast, don't skimp on it. Really, be generous in the in the funeral feast. And then and then blessing his children, and then saying, uh, I, I sense that the end is coming. Turn my bed around so I can see the sun setting. And goodbye, and poof, he's gone. And I was so moved by that. I thought, I want to do that. You know, I want to do it just like that. Um, I had a boyfriend who I thought of this. I got an email from him this morning. I, I, I keep my friends my entire life. A boyfriend that I had that I was 15 years old and didn't obviously Mary, uh, lives in Seattle and we're friends. And uh, uh, when, when we were 15 and 18 or whatever we are, 
he uh, took me rowing on a lake in Central Park, in, in, in um, oh, Prospect Park in Brooklyn. We would row Saturday afternoons around the lake, and he would uh, recite poetry. Uh, it was a fabulous thing. I mean, as a, you know, you're 15 years old, someone rows you around and recites poetry. Uh, someone who's melancholy, and you think about Heathcliff. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a non-parade situation. Anyway, uh, he, and he recited a lot of Dylan Thomas, and particularly the poem about uh, the death of his father, which I read again this morning. And I hadn't read in its entirety in a long time because I didn't, I didn't actually get the gist of what he really meant to say. And I think I actually understood it wrong until I read it again this morning. But the last line of each of those stanzas is, do not go gently into that good night. Yeah. Rage, rage against the dying, dying light. And uh, he read that to me, and I thought, I think that's wrong. You know, I was 15, but I said, mm -hmm. I think that's wrong. I, I want to go gently into mm -hmm. that good night, and I want, fix, I want somehow to have a mind that doesn't rage. You know, I'm not at all interested in that arriving mm -hmm. any sooner than it does. But I think back and I think, you know, it wasn't that I was so spiritually, you know, that I knew anything, but in my bones I knew. I thought, that's not right. Uh, I want something else. Years later, I, I, one of my longest friends, also off trail, one of my longest closest friends is a Roman Catholic nun. And uh, we think we have, uh, uh, we've had such different paths. She's a Roman Catholic nun uh, for more than, uh, for about 55 years, and I've been married for 55 years. And, uh, but we think we have quite parallel lives, interiorly we have. And she was telling me about a friend of hers who uh, died um, um, uh, as a young woman in her 30s. And she was, this is now 30 or 40 years ago that this woman died, and that she had been present and she said, she was telling me how touched she was by uh, Rosemary's mother, the mother of the woman who died, saying, as Rosemary was dying, don't be frightened, Rosemary, you're only dying. I thought, whoa. I don't know, I don't know that I could hear a Dharma talk that would do that to me. My mind said, whoa. Somebody has a mind that so gets that that they could do it. And I thought to myself, heaven forbid that I should have to ever do that in my life. But to be able to do it, whoa. So I think that my, the, 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 some of, the, uh, some of the, these off-trail intimations that I want to tell you are things that gave me the idea that there was something that I wanted to do, or that something that could be done, that there were minds that were not like my mind, um, filled as it was with anxiety and fears and worries about catastrophes, and that some other people had other kinds of minds and weren't as frightened as I was. Um, 
How about a woman? Uh, it's funny, I didn't think of that until this moment. I, uh, a year after my mother died, uh, I was living in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, my, mother's, uh, my mother was buried in uh, New York City. And uh, a year after she died, I flew back to New York for the formal unveiling of the headstone of her grave, which is what Jews do. They bury immediately that people die. And then in that year, uh, they have a headstone installed. And there's actually an unveiling, like a work of art, where uh, there's a cloth over the headstone. And uh, our rabbi is present and says the prayers and the memory and unveils that headstone. Um, and I always have two memories when I think about it. I, uh, I flew from Columbus to New York, and I, I, I was married. I had, uh, I had uh, two children by then. I was 23 years old, 24 by that time. Left my husband and my children and flew up. So I'm flying by myself, well, and the other plane people, but I'm by myself, sitting by a window. And I hadn't flown perhaps once or twice, once for the funeral, maybe once before that. Not a lot. This is 1955 and 6. And it was a stormy day in a propeller plane, and it was very bouncy. And I was probably quite tense about the whole business about going back and really dealing again face-to-face with my mother's death. So I'm flying this plane, and I realized I was uh, clutching onto the the uh, arms of the chair the whole way, and um, bouncing and clutching. And there was a woman sitting next to me who I registered as an older woman. She probably was my age, probably not even my age, but an older woman tidily dressed in a nice suit. And I realized that I'm clutching, and she was sitting quite calm. Calm, plain bouncing, she's calm. And um, they served lunch, and she ate her lunch. I couldn't even look at the lunch. I was so busy. First of all, I have a very nervous stomach, and second of all, with a nervous stomach to eat on a bouncy plane while you're frightened. (laughs) So we fly like that, not a word. And then we we land in New York, plane comes in to, well, for a landing, and under my breath, uh, I say the Hebrew phrase that means, praise God. Uh, and uh, I, I think I'm saying it under my breath, I say that. And she looks at me and she says, you said it. And <laughs> I realized that she had realized that it was a uh, jittery flight, uh, and that it could have, you know, it was a jittery flight. She'd experienced it the same way that I did, but she had decided, she had been able, I don't know that she decided, she had been able to sit quietly and not torture herself with anxiety, and she had been able to eat her lunch. And she was on the same plane and equally aware as I that that was a jumpy flight. And I thought to myself, wow, that's a feasible thing. People do that, you know? Like, so, and I remember her always, you know, as one of my gurus. I have no idea what her name is, where she's going. But it was one of those things that said, there are other ways that people have minds. 
that uh, it's not the, what happens, it's how the mind processes what happens. And other people have other minds. It's true, I think, that, some, that people are born with predispositions to, I believe that. Some people have more predisposition to fret or anxiety. I would imagine that when they did app cars, if they did them, I don't think so in those days, that I would have had that kind of a startled response because I'm an easily startled person. But even so, that people, because it's changed, you know. I wouldn't say that I'm the most tranquil person in the world, but I eat, I fly, I this, I that. But the whole idea that well, you could change your mind and change your experience. The other little piece, briefest, because it comes into my mind as a piece of dharma from that experience is at the unveiling, they said whatever they said, and they took this covering off the headstone. And it said my mother's name, and it said beloved wife, mother, and grandmother. One of my hands are all stands on in. And I was so surprised because I realized I, 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 there was a way, it's is ridiculous to say, of course I knew she was my father's wife and my children's grandmother, but in my, in my mind and in my experience, she was my mother. And this, that was like a complete surprise. I was so startled to see that there was anybody else involved. <laughs> and it just, it's another just moment in which you see, whoa, look what the mind does, what it does. Anyway, we have 10 minutes until lunchtime. That's a beautiful personal lineage. <laughs> That's, you know, we all have that lineage that isn't the one, you know, that comes down through traditional sources. Uh-huh. And there it is. There it is. Yeah, it's so beautiful. I'm like you. It's really comforting to me to hear you say that you do want to go gently. Yeah. You do want to go gently. I do. I do too. And the older I get, the more gently I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't want to go screaming and hauling and trying yeah. to avoid the, yeah. the reality. Yeah. I think, thank you. That's Let's do sweet. it. Let's do <laughs> it. It touches you know, my heart a lot. <laughs> well, I think we're quite lucky because I'm pretty sure that you and I have friends who want the same who are going to do the same for us, and we'll do it as we are currently doing it for them. Uh That's what I think, too, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I can do it as best I can, and then it'll be easier for others. Yeah. (laughs) Suzuki said when he was dying, he said, if when I die, I make a fuss, don't worry about it. Yeah, he said, there's some fear, but he said, that's okay. He said, don't worry about it, that's just suffering Buddha. Yeah, right. Let's sit two minutes because I need to give you some instructions about the lunchtime.
Okay. So here are the things that I need to tell you. Um, did you all bring your lunch, I hope? Yes. If you didn't, there's a, um, a deli over in Woodacre. Um, and you could welcome to go over there and come back. If you did, you're welcome to eat it in this room if you like, or take it outside. I'd like to keep this room a quiet space. So if you'd like to keep this hour for yourself as a contemplative hour, or you can do it outside as well and just elect to sit by yourself, uh, then definitely stay in here. If you'd like to be outside and be quiet and silent and just be present for your lunch, that's fine too. If you've come from a long distance with somebody and you're really eager to connect with them, uh, maybe take your lunch a little further distance and eat together with them. Or eat your lunch and then go for a walk with them or do something. But keep the space around, at least uh, a retreat space, for those people who'd like it that way. Is that all right with you? And there is tea water outside. Um, Uh, it asks me to mention the fact that uh, uh, at Spirit Rock, as you came in, you probably passed a Donna basket. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. And um, when people come here, they, they, they sign up and do pay. But what you pay is the operating costs of Spirit Rock and uh, um, just what what what. And actually, we work very hard to keep those prices quite low. Um, there's another basket that's a, a basket if you want to leave a gift for Lynn and myself. We'll share it, that all of the teachings happen here. Uh, everybody teaches as an act of generosity. And for those people who are moved, they respond with an act of generosity, if they can. So I, I, I thank you in advance from both of us for thinking about that, for making it part of your practice. There's all kinds of information on the back tables and outside and inside and on the bulletin board. There's all kinds of interesting things. Uh, anybody else have any questions before the lunchtime? Yeah. There is a retreat going up on the upper hall, so I'm sorry that I cannot invite you to go and look at the upper hall because it's very beautiful. So sometime if there isn't a retreat, do go up and look. Or come and sit a retreat up in the upper hall. It's beautiful up there. <laughs> There'll be a day-long retreat, I happen to know, on April 3rd up in the upper hall. We rarely can do a day-long up there. There are usually retreats happening. But there isn't on April 3rd, uh, because I'm, te I'm, I'm actually teaching it. That's how come I know. I don't have the whole schedule memorized, but <laughs> I, I do know mine. Does anybody else have any questions about this lunch? I wish you a very good lunch. <laughs> An hour. A bell will ring 10 minutes before to let you know. Try to be here. Just at 1.30 so we can start.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.